I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, March 21st, 2023. Coming up, we'll discuss water reuse, particularly transforming wastewater into safe drinking water as a means of living in water-scarce West. Our guest is Dr. Asta Parker, an environmental engineer focusing on water reuse. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. A recent study from the University of Stirling in Scotland suggests that a partnership between mushrooms and trees might offer a solution to both mitigating climate change and feeding millions of people. How on Earth's Benita Lee has more. The study highlights the possibilities of mycoforestry, an emerging agricultural practice that involves growing edible mushrooms alongside trees. In mycoforestry, fungi spores are injected into the root systems of tree saplings. The relationship between the fungi and the tree is symbiotic. The fungi gather nutrients from the ground for the tree, and the tree feeds the fungi carbohydrates. Deforestation continues to be a major contributor to climate change as wooded areas are stripped bare and turned into farmland. Between 2010 and 2020, over 11 million acres of forest were cleared every year around the world for food production. For this study, the researchers poured through data from published sources. They calculated the emissions and sequestration possibilities of various tree planting methods in a range of forest biomes from boreal to tropical. The scientists say that cultivating fungi in forests may sequester 14 tons of carbon for every roughly two and a half acres every year and produce a protein-rich food source for nearly 19 million people annually. Boreal forests in the northern hemisphere showed the most promise with the potential to sequester enough carbon per acre to equal the CO2 emitted every year by over 200 cars. The researchers urged other scientists to investigate mycoforestry as a way to help conserve forests, maintain biodiversity, and prevent greenhouse gases from entering the atmosphere. The study was published last week in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. For How on Earth, I'm Benita Lee. We humans have an evolutionary history of eating fruits that, when overripe, can ferment. Like us, animals from fruit flies to elephants can become inebriated when they binge on fermented fruits. Because alcohol is toxic to living cells, think of how it stings when you put it on a cut. Animals have evolved a family of enzymes called alcohol dehydrogenases that break down alcohol. Researchers recently found that giving mice a shot of a hormone called FGF21, which both mice and humans naturally produce in their livers, sped up the animal's recovery from a high dose of alcohol that knocked them out. Mice engineered to lack this enzyme took a lot longer to recover, as did the untreated siblings of mice that had received the shot. FGF21 did not counteract inebriating effects caused by other sedative drugs, showing its specificity for ethanol. In earlier studies in rodents, 
The hormone was shown to suppress taste for alcohol, induce water drinking to prevent dehydration, and protect against liver damage due to excessive alcohol intake. So what is this magic bullet? FGF-21 is a hormone produced in liver in response to stresses, including starvation and alcohol. This so-called starvation hormone has also been implicated in a longer, healthier lifespan, which may underlie some of the reported benefits of moderate drinking. And just how does this hormone work? It gets across the blood-brain barrier in a way that's not understood, and it activates neurons in the brain that regulate arousal and alertness by releasing a neurotransmitter called noradrenaline. In humans, a dose of noradrenaline wakes people up. If FGF-21 works in a similar way in humans, scientists may be able to expand on this research to develop a drug that increases levels of this hormone to stimulate the brain to pump out noradrenaline. Such a drug could have life-saving effects for treating alcohol poisoning. The study was published last week in the journal Cell Metabolism. And on the science calendar, tomorrow, March 22nd, Denver's Café Scientifique will host a presentation by Dr. George Sowers. Dr. Sowers is a physicist who has worked for 30 years in space transportation, and he was involved in the development of more than a dozen launch systems. His Café Sci presentation is titled Space Resources, How Space Can Save the Earth. A return of human spaceflight to the moon has become a hot topic again, and NASA's Artemis program plans to land people on the moon within the next two years. Other countries are also joining the race. So what is the driver this time? Dr. Sowers discusses that the goal is resources, such as iron, aluminum, titanium, helium-3, and, most importantly, water. Dr. Sowers will explain the many challenges we face when mining on the moon, why we're going and who is going, and how lunar operations could benefit Earth. That is tomorrow, March 22nd, starting at 6.30 p.m. Everyone is welcome to these Café Sci presentations and discussions. Please note that the Café Sci in Denver has changed locations. This talk will be held at the Flightco Tower, which is the former Stapleton Airport Air Traffic Control Tower, located at 3120 Yunta Street in Denver's Central Park neighborhood. The tower has been repurposed and is a brewery, restaurant, coffee bar, and entertainment venue, including Cafe Sci. For more information, go to coloradocafesci.org. When you poured tap water into your coffee maker or tea kettle this morning, or for that matter, turned on the washing machine or flushed the toilet, you may not have been thinking about where that water came from, or for that matter, where it went to next. 
Well, this week is World Water Week. Who knew? That's according to its creator, the Stockholm International <coughs> Water Institute, a nonprofit organization. So we're focusing today's show on water reuse, especially what's called direct potable reuse, which is essentially turning wastewater of all kinds into drinking water. The combined stresses of climate change, intensifying droughts, and population growth in the already parched U.S. West, for example, are forcing state legislators, including those in Colorado, as well as cities elsewhere, to design and fund more ways to squeeze more water out of dwindling sources. This is where direct potable reuse comes in. So despite the yuck factor for many people, it's critical and a promising solution, but surely not the only solution to the water scarcity crisis that we face. Our guest today is at the forefront of the growing water reuse movement here in Colorado and nationally. Dr. Asta Parker is an environmental engineer who's a consultant with Brown and Caldwell, and she works on national water reuse issues. She formerly worked for Denver Water and also as an adjunct professor at CU Boulder. She joins us in the studio now. Dr. Parker, welcome to How on Earth. Hi, thanks for having me, Susan. So great to have you here. Lots to talk about with water. And given that it's World Water Week, and there's been so much coverage by us and many about sort of water scarcity, Colorado River Basin, climate change, drought, I want to keep that in the background, but really thought it's important today to focus on water reuse, like how we get more from less and locally. So before we sort of dive into the bottom layers, as it were, of water reuse and, and how it works, let me ask you like, why you think it's so critical that communities address this and practice more reuse of water. Yeah, that's a great question, and happy World Water Day. Official World <laughs> Water Day is tomorrow, Right. and this year's theme is Accelerating Change. And I think that that might be a common theme that we are seeing with water resource issues across the arid west um, is that they are changing um, rapidly. And this is due to drought, climate change, and just uh, population growth in areas that may not have as much water, um, like Colorado. We see, you know, large amounts of population, economic, and industrial growth. And so water reuse is already becoming and is going to become a very critical tool in the toolbox of resources that we have, like conservation, finding new water sources, and utilizing every drop that we have locally to be able to meet these gaps um, in water supply and water demand that we're seeing across the West. Mm, really important. And I know it's kind of cliche at this point, but I go back to the many decades old adage from Mark Twain, whiskey's for drinking, water's for fighting. <laughs> Do you think if and when more communities are actually recycling water, we'll have less to feud about? That's a great question. I'd like to think that there will be less feuds because one of my favorite parts of working in uh, water reuse systems and in DPR, which I know we're going to get into in just a minute. Direct potable reuse, for yes. those who don't know the acronym. Yeah. Um, indirect potable reuse systems is that it takes everyone. So there, it takes all of the different agencies. It takes a lot of different partners and a lot of stakeholders to come together to make these projects happen. And so being able to realize a more regional uh, dream and a, a larger dream across the arid west and understanding how water recycling projects benefit your neighbors upstream, downstream, and locally within your community, I think actually will bring more people together. That's my hope. Mm -hmm. So we like to think that Water, let's say here in Boulder, all comes from this glorious, albeit ever-shrinking, Arapaho Glacier, which Boulder owns, and other pure 
sources from the water cycle. What actually are the sources? Not just here in Boulder, but what's what's the reality and how has it changed now from you know decades, even centuries ago? Yeah, so this is one of my favorite uh, fun facts and kind of myths to debust. We all want to think that we're drinking snowflakes. We all want to think that we're <laughs> drinking water that is coming from a, a spring um, or or from a glacier, and it's never been touched before. And like the labels on those water bottles, exactly. Uh-huh. It, you can think of all the different branding. Um, we see this a lot in beer production across the Rockies, um, and some. You know, we think about these mountain reservoirs, and while that is you know, very, very good pristine water quality, the reality is that all water on the planet's recycled. So the same water that the dinosaurs were drinking and the same water that, you know, the dinosaurs were expelling in other ways, we're <laughs> drinking that now. It's just moving around and how we use it across the planet. Mm, really important. So then from that sort of natural and historical water cycle use and the sources, what are the common sources of recycled water, basically the water that we drink and the water that we don't drink? Yeah, that's a really good question. So there's a lot of industrial water reuse that happens. So that might happen within an industry and we may never, you know, know about it or see it um, actually on an industry's campus. And they might have their own effluent from different production and manufacturing lines. But what um, I'd, I'd love to to provide more awareness to is that municipal wastewater, so treated municipal wastewater supplies, are one of our best options to be able to reuse and treat for other recycled water projects. So it's a locally available and drought-proof water supply. We're still washing clothes, we're still taking showers, and even if we put less water down the drain um, that's coming into the municipal water treatment plant, that's a very uh, sustainable water supply. We're still going to be providing that water even in times of drought. So how does that picture, though, differ from, say, Boulder's wastewater treatment right now, or Denver's for that matter? Um, it really doesn't. So mm-hmm. it, it's actually it's actually about this. It's all the same thing. So we have uh, we have the wastewater supplies, and across the United States, wastewater treatment plants are a really important part of protecting public health and the environment, protecting our waterways and providing um, safe safe access to rivers, lakes, streams, and ecological systems. And so it doesn't really change much from what we're looking at right now in Boulder and in Denver. I know there's been huge debate nationally, particularly in smaller communities, not only about the cost of upgrading wastewater treatment facilities to filter out, say, all the nitrates from agriculture, or to stop them upstream, but, but to filter them out, as well as, say, more in a more granular level, the endocrine disruptors in the system. So do does the wastewater treatment for this pure recycled and potable water have more advanced levels of purification and filtration that actually are sort of a step beyond what we what most communities have now? Yes, that's a great question. So it is. So it would be more advanced treatment if we are looking to potable water reuse. And to really dive into that, I want to take one step back and clarify what we're talking about when we talk about potable reuse Mm -hmm. versus non-potable reuse. So if you are driving around um, over the next week, I hope that everybody who's listening right now can take a look at purple fire hydrants that you see or purple signage. It's a very distinct purple um, that's actually required by code to be the same purple across the board. And look at that and you will know that that is actually recycled water that's going into that fire hydrant that's being used or it's being used for irrigation if you see a sign or something like that. Hmm. Those are non-potable applications. So irrigation, toilet flushing, 
fire protection lines, that sort of thing. And does the conduit to those hydrants also begin at or include wastewater treatment plants, or that's more just direct coming through a different pipe system? Um, Those are all coming from municipal wastewater systems that have been treated and they have some level of advanced treatment and they might even have their own treatment plant like they do um, in Denver. So Denver has a wastewater treatment plant and right next door there's a non-potable recycled water facility. When we move to potable water reuse, we are looking at more advanced treatment. Um, and we can dive in, and I love to nerd out about all the different treatment <laughs> technologies that we can use. It thrills me. Um, but you might, you've heard of a lot of them in household uses. We just have a much larger scales and more tightly controlled systems for reverse osmosis, for example, or granular activated carbon, which is what you see in your fish tank or your Brita filter. Mm-hmm. Um, those have granular activated carbon or a large stary pens. Which and, I can relate to from backpacking. Yes. They work when they work really well, but yes. this is a major... But we don't run out of batteries <laughs> or ever get the frowny face or have any issues with our, you know, giant UV uh, systems. We make sure that that's the case. And for potable water reuse, specifically for direct potable reuse, which I think we were um, trying to focus on today as a great solution for many communities, this is where we take the highly treated wastewater put it through further purification through these different treatment technologies and treat the water to drinking water standards. And then we're able to actually blend that water either before or after the drinking water treatment plant. And this is a new water supply for a community. We're going to continue on that note. Just for those who are joining us later, you're listening to KG News Science Show, How on Earth. I'm Susan Moran, and I'm talking with our guest, Dr. Asta Parker. She's an environmental engineer working as a consultant with Brown and Caldwell and focusing on national and statewide water reuse issues. So I think it's really critical the way you stress it's a local water supply, which doesn't mean there'll still be battles and water scarcity issues in the Colorado River Basin and elsewhere. But could you give an example of maybe the first community or a community where there's a track record enough that's doing this now? Sure, absolutely. Um, so I think it's, you know, a locally available supply is what I would say to keep myself from getting in trouble from, you know, where we move, well, how we move water in the West. Um, locally available supplies. And, you know, there's a longstanding history. The very first direct potable reuse facility um, was actually in Windhoek, Namibia. And it started in 1968, and it's been in operation since. And 1968. 1968. Mm-hmm. So it's been going on for a really long time. And what a lot of folks may not realize is that we have been doing a form of water reuse called indirect potable reuse for a long time, where we take highly treated wastewater and we discharge it into a lake, a reservoir, a river, and another community picks it up downstream and they reuse the water. That is actually just the water cycle. That is actually just how we treat water and use water across the United States. And indirect also meaning it does not go into our drinking water pipes, but it goes back into various water bodies. Yes, it goes back into various water bodies that are then later used for as a drinking water supply. And another point I think is interesting is pretty much we all live downstream. We all live downstream. That's exactly, that is exactly the, I love that. <laughs> and I, th- I think that, that that's a really good thing for folks to realize is that we've already been doing this for a very, very long time. This is just a more managed way of handling, um, handling that water cycle. So 
when we're talking about historical context, Namibia was the first to do direct potable reuse, but we've been doing what we would call de facto reuse, where we're not really acknowledging that it's water reuse. It's just how we do water supply planning across the United States. But it's really not quite following. What do you mean? How does that differ then? So direct potable reuse, Mm -hmm. we are intentionally taking wastewater and treating it locally and putting it back into the treated drinking water for a community. For indirect potable reuse or de facto reuse, we're putting it into a river and sending it downstream. Away it goes, and the next community picks it up as part of their drinking water supply. That's an example of where, you know, using rivers. And, and across the West, we often do that. And so when we're talking about the Colorado River, we're talking about other river water supplies, that's just the urban water cycle that we're working with. Mm-hmm. So say, even without getting too specific, do you know... For Boulder, say, what percent comes from the Arapaho Glacier, which would seem direct, right? Or direct from the from nature's supply. And roughly what percent is recycled from other sources? So for Boulder, I don't know the specific percentages off the top of my head. Um, however, I, I bet that if you go to Boulder's website, to their water mm-hmm. website, they would tell you where everything is coming from. Um, but they do not practice direct potable reuse right now in Boulder. Um, There are no communities that are doing direct potable reuse right now within Colorado. However, I want to point out that Colorado has been on the leading edge of direct potable reuse for a long time. Many folks think that it started in California when there was a lot of press about this um, in the early 2000s with several, you know, potable reuse facilities there. But actually, the first... Los Angeles, San Diego? Yes, Los Angeles, Mm -hmm. San Diego, Orange County... Mm. Um, And what's interesting is that Colorado's been on the forefront. So Denver Water actually hosted the first direct potable reuse demonstration facility in the United States in the late 1980s. And it was actually at the same site that their non-potable water reuse facility is at now. And they were testing different technologies. They did tours. They did a lot of outreach. And it ended up not panning out as the best option for Denver at that time. Why not at that time? I think for multiple reasons, but one of them is that they decided to go with a non-potable reuse facility, and I think that that made sense more so for their economic growth and expansion. And technologies have come a long way since then. So they were much larger technologies, required a lot more energy, and so it may not have been as economically viable or beneficial. Um, And there's a lot to be said about going first. So what have been some of the key barriers or limitations to rolling it out in more cities? Is it more sort of social, psychological resistance? Is it economic? Because these are huge investments cities have to make, right? Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of it is, um, you know, psychological and and making sure that your community is on board. However, we have a long track record in a lot of different communities in Texas, California, Florida. We talk a lot about the West, but there's actually quite a lot of potable water reuse going on in the East as well of the United States um, for different drivers. But some of the larger barriers are, they, they might be what folks would call the yuck factor, but we have ways of actually getting over that and actually working with communities. We can make beer out of purified water. We have done that. We have <laughs> That's taste a big tests. seller. It, it Don't is worry a huge about the one. toilet. You've got beer. <laughs> it, it's a huge one when it comes to drinking water and, and increasing consumer confidence um, in these technologies. We can do tours of the facilities. I would say that the larger barriers really are in Colorado water rights. So you have Mm. to have the ability to reuse the water. And that's not really so much of an engineering issue, but that's something of how we've created water policy over the years. A Um, very labyrinthine legal system. Yes. So does it 
taste much different. <clears throat> I know you've been at the forefront of this and thus have to be a poster child. <laughs> say, look, I can drink this. Does it taste Absolutely. much different? And did you get over the yuck factor of having, you know, some human effluence? I know that's a small percentage of the wastewater, but still. Yeah, well, I think it helps to know how wastewater treatment works and like, you know, and, and realizing that it is really just river water, lake water by the time it's actually coming out of the wastewater plant. And having spent a lot of my career now um, designing, operating and working with advanced treatment technologies and with specific direct potable reuse treatment trains and technologies, it the water on the other side, I'm fully confident in and have been from the beginning. Does it taste different? That's a great question. And it does because a lot of times we are removing so much from the water that it ends up tasting like, you know, an RO filter on your water or a deionized um, water like you might like you would buy in the store. So mm-hmm. sometimes it's actually too pure for some folks. They're like, oh, where are the minerals? Where's the hardness? Where where are all the things that we really enjoy drinking? Interesting. Everything's been extracted. Everything's been extracted at that point. So um, just in the 30 seconds or so we have left, any particular takeaways for listeners? Yeah, I would say that my biggest takeaway in celebration of World Water Week and and talking about potable reuse is that direct potable reuse may not be right for every single community. However, I love that with the new regulations that have just been passed and with being able to talk about it here today, I really appreciate that opportunity. And I think that it's another tool in the toolbox, but it takes all of it and it takes everyone pitching in, it takes conservation, and it's going to take all of the available options we have to continue living in the arid west. Thank you so much. And I see a series or definitely a follow-on for this huge emerging topic. Uh, Thanks so much for coming on the show, Asta. Thank you. That was Dr. Asta Parker. She's an environmental engineer who works as a consultant with the firm Browning Caldwell and formerly worked at Denver Water. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show was produced by me, Susan Moran, and engineered by Joel Parker. Additional contributions from Beth Bennett, Benita Lee, and Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music was George Handel's Water Music. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran.